the unavoidably weird end of the Bible. Uh, we're going to dive back into the book of Revelation. Um, we, we started, we did the seven churches of the Revelation, a series called The Seven, back in 2013. Um, and we stopped at the end of chapter three for a very good reason. I had no idea how to get into chapter four. Um, we, we, this is one of the most uh, <clears throat> argued over and systemized and debated books of the Bible. The Revelation is very complex. How many of you have read the book of the Revelation? How many of you came out of it going, oh, that made perfect sense? All right. There is a lot of weirdness in the book of the Revelation. Um, and there are a couple of different reasons for that. So I want to, before we get into the text, and we are going to get into the text, I want to lay down just a couple of simple rules so that you can hopefully read the Revelation a little bit better. The first rule that I want you to know about is um, the fusion rule. Um, and these are my rules. You won't find these in a textbook anywhere, but they seem to reflect um, the, interpret the best way to read it. Uh, the book of the Revelation is a fusion of Hebrew and Greco-Roman worldviews. And it's an uneasy fusion of the two. All right? it's an, we might call this the alloy uh, rule rather than the fusion rule. Um, because an alloy is two metals that are mixed together, but give them time and they'll separate, all right? Um, an alloy is, is the, the strengths and the weaknesses of two or more metals being joined together makes the, that metal stronger or better for whatever purpose that you have. Um, steel, is a, steel is iron with, with a certain amount of carbon enter, entered into it. Um, bronze is uh, copper and tin and a little bit of arsenic, all right? Um, and and alloys are alloys are when you take things. That's right, right. Checking with all the chemists, that is what bronze is, right? Um, copper and tin. Yeah, copper, tin, arsenic. Yeah. Um, so uh, you'd think that a historian would know that, but bronze age has nothing to do with the actual use of bronze. Um, in the Revelation, you have this uneasy combination of the Hebrew world and the Greco-Roman world. They mix at weird times. And it's confusing because you will see, for example, in chapter 4, wh where we're going to start this morning, you will see a very uh, Roman image that has a very Hebrew interpretation to it. And then other places, the, John, in trying to explain what he's seeing in this vision, in these visions of the Revelation, he will use a, an image from the Hebrew Bible to describe something from the Greco-Roman world. So now for Christians who came out of the, uh, they had the Jewish scriptures and so they were very versed in those scriptures and many of them were, were uh, Hellenic Jews or, or Greek-speaking Jews. Um, it was easy for them to see this. They understood these images without a problem. Oh, I see what he's doing. You know, I see the connection he's making. Um, but it would be the equivalent, uh, if I make a statement about nobody plays football like Newt Rockney today, right? Nobody really knows. I mean, some of us know who Newt Rockney was, all right? But first of all, kudos for being named Newt. Um, that's a G, I think, that, that name starts with. Um, but uh, it's, it's a reference that we don't really get because we have kind of shifted away from that. Our Western culture is predominantly Greco-Roman and kind of uses a little bit of the Old Testament, but we have a very different perspective on the world. We have a Greco-Roman culture with a uh, Germanic 
uh, language and syntax and methodology of, of expounding it. And I'm getting to be a, a kind of a history nerd here. But basically, we have a very European way of viewing things. The, the book of the Revelation is a very Asian thing. Right? It's, it's West Asia, but it's, but it's an Asian perspective on things. And so in an Asian mindset, that idea of that tension between the Hebrew and the Gre Greco-Roman, they're more comfortable with it, and they're more versed in that world than we are. When we read a history book about the Roman, em Roman Empire and the Roman world, we think we know tons and tons and tons about that culture. But in reality, we just know tons and tons and tons about the ruling elite. We know nothing about the everyday person. And guess who the Christians were? They were everyday people. So the way they talked and the way they communicated and the way they, they conveyed imagery and thoughts and ideas, we know next to nothing about their everyday life. And that makes it difficult for us to understand this. I'm going to tell you something. And, and uh, this week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, um, there's a blog post that's going to go out on my blog um, about uh, context, culture, and how, um, and confusion. How we, how we, it's very easy for us to not know this. And how do we interpret a book of the Bible that exists in a context we don't really understand? And that is the case of the book of Revelation. The result of that is that um, there is absolutely no consensus on how to, how to interpret the book of the Revelation. Um, put four theologians in a room, they will have seven opinions about how to read this book. And so I am going to intentionally avoid making any absolute statements about this. And you say, that's weak. No, it's just being honest. It's just being honest. Where I can speak with certainty, I will speak with certainty. Where there, are, there is area for interpretation, I will leave those areas gray. Um, I won't say, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says I hate teachers that do that. All right, just tell me what you believe and tell me what you're not sure about and we'll be good. Now, some of those things will upset people. Because if you've been trained in certain theological frameworks, you may say, we know this for absolute. And, and some things we do and other things we don't. Because it exists in this, this alloy, this fusion of two worlds. Um, there are a couple of rules for how to read this that are not that, that have to do with the style. And I'm going to give those to you very briefly. The first is the rule of twos. The rule of twos. Uh, most of these visions have twos in them. Uh, there are uh, two rulers. There are two cities. There are, um, uh, there are two destinies. There are, uh, there are lots and lots of twos. And the more you read it, you will see this pairing. Um, and these pairings exist even in the beginning. In the beginning of the book, when Jesus introduces himself, he introduces himself in sets of twos. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who was and is and shall be. He, he, he does these pairings. So there's a lot of twos. So always keep your eyes open for twos. And the other, probably the most important rule that you have to know is what's called the cycle rule. Um, the cycle rule comes from Judaism, and it is the idea that what is happening now has happened before and will happen again until. Dot, dot, dot. Now, the dot, dot, dot is the intervention of the divine sovereign God. So in the Revelation, some people say, was the is the Revelation describing the experience of the Christians in the first century? And the answer is yes. Is the revelation looking back at the prophecies of the Old Testament? The answer is yes. 
Does the, revelation, does the revelation look at current history and see things that we can apply to our present world? And the answer is yes. Can the, does the revelation look forward to the end of the world? The answer is yes. It's easy to see how complicated this book can be to interpret. The, the, the Hebrew view is all right, of history is what is happening now has happened before and will happen again and it will happen again, and it has happened before, and it will happen again, until. Until. And the revelation both portrays history and future, as well as the present. So when we interpret the revelation, we could either spend years and years and years. And I had a friend who taught it in a Sunday school class, and I think he went for five and a half years every Sunday. We are not going to do that. We are going to be done by Thanksgiving. You say, you can't possibly teach the Revelation before Thanksgiving. I'm going to teach until Thanksgiving and I'm going to stop. So we'll see where we go with that. Because um, I do not want to be teaching this during Christmas. Um, so let's take a look at the book of Revelation, chapter 4. This is written by the Apostle John. Um, scholars don't agree with that, but they're wrong. Um, I, I personally, my personal opinion, and I would not take a bullet for this, but my personal opinion is that this is the first book that the Apostle John writes. On the island of Patmos, he receives this vision of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It informs the way that he views the story of Jesus, who was one of his closest friends years and years and years ago before. And so John writes down his revelation and then he goes back and writes a gospel that is informed by what he has seen in the Revelation. Now, can I prove that? Not yet. Give me time. But, um, but I, it seems to make sense. If you read the Revelation first, you will see that John uses certain themes that appear in these visions over and over again. Life and water and blood. These things, these things come up out of the Revelation. I, I think this. I think this. I can't prove it. Um, so this is what John sees. I'm about to read a really lengthy passage, so just bear with me, okay? After this, so after he receives three letters from Jesus, Jesus is, which, this is great, by the way. You've got to get this. If you go through and read the book of Revelation, I encourage you to do this, you will find that chapters 2 and 3 are dictated to John while he is laying on the ground with his face buried in the dirt. Um, he, he, the, he, the, Jesus appears to him and John drops to the ground and then Jesus says, no, no, don't be afraid and then just starts dictating letters. You just picture John laying there going, uh, how exactly that worked, I don't know, but, but he's laying there. So after this, I looked, I, I literally, I, I raised my gaze, that's the word there, and behold, the door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's back in chapter one, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he sat, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne was 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders would fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scrolls or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Get ready, it's about to get weird. All right. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven horns, seven eyes, purple people eaters. Um, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I'm going to get the rest of the chapter, but I want to stop there. I want to pray real quick, and we're going to get into this. Father, give us wisdom and clarity. I believe that your word is meant to be the revelation of Jesus to us. It's so easy to get distracted with minutia in a book like this. Help us to keep our focus on Christ. We pray this through him and by his power, by his resurrection, in the spirit, we pray. Amen. Remember, the second rule I gave you was the rule of twos. And there are two things that we need to note here in this text. There are two main players. I titled this, this message, I don't often guy, tell you guys the titles of my, the ma- my messages, but, but this is um, the songs of the world, the old and the new. There are two songs that are sung here. They begin with the phrase, worthy are you. And those two songs tell us an awful lot about what the original audience of the Revelation needed to hear, what we need to hear, and what we need to know. Now, it's very, very easy to get lost in the minutia 
just like I prayed, of all of these numbers and colors and stones and metals and what is this, I want to just give you very briefly what we're looking at here, just so you know. This is the, this, this image of the, this one seated on the throne, the throne with the, and he's got funny colors and, and he's surrounded by a rainbow and there's a sea of glass. And, and people want to get all into this and break down everything and say, well, this represents this and this represents this. As near as I can tell, what this image is, is it is a, um, an exaltation of a scene that was very familiar to these people. Um, the, the scene that was very familiar to them was the crowning or the, the imperium. And when a, when, a, when a conquering general would come to Rome or to come to a city, he was crowned and declared imperator. And one of the things that they would do is they would paint him. Right? They would paint his face and they would seat him on a throne. He was supposed to look like uh, um, Jupiter Maximus. Uh, he was supposed to look like the great god. He would go to the, the temple of Jupiter, um, which was in Rome, and he would sit on this throne. Um, he would ride on a chariot, and he would sit on this throne, and, and everybody would come and see him, and they would declare him the great victor. Victor Roma, Victor Roma, Victor Roma. Kind of like gladiator, but bigger. And as near as I can tell, that is kind of the image that he's trying to evoke. Although really, to be honest, we know very, very little about the Greek words that underlie the translations here. Jasper, carnelian, we don't really know what those stones are. We think they're like an orange stone and a purple stone, but we just don't know. Um, and the way that the Greco-Roman world describes color is very interesting. They tend to describe colors as things that are that color, but they clearly perceive things different. For example, Homer describes the Mediterranean as a wine dark meaning it's purple, um, and he describes honey as being green. So, so there, Greek, Greek colors are kind of interesting, but the description seems to be of a conquering, ruling general. Now, what John does is he takes that and he elevates it to heaven, and he makes it, he ties it to an a, a image from Daniel chapter 7, what's called the Ancient of Days, which is a depiction of God, all right? And if you read in Daniel 7, you'll see this phrase, the ancient of days, the ancient of days, and he's enthroned, and there's similarities to the depiction. So he's taking something that would be familiar to them, and he's saying, okay, you guys are used to seeing a Roman general, right, who had a certain claim to rights and powers. Well, when I saw the ancient of days, I saw that elevated to the nth degree, all right? I saw someone who had absolute supreme power, and authority over all things. This is what I saw. And in his hands he held a scroll. And it was written on the outside and the inside. That's, that is um, a title deed. That's what that means. All right? when, when a scroll, a, a will and a testament. All right, Because uh, titles of property were all bound up in your will. Your last testament will in Roman culture. You would write it all on the inside. The, the testament on the inside. Then it was sealed. And it was given to the Vestal Virgins. I'm not making that up. That actually is what they did. Um, that was their, their job. And it was given to them and it was stored until the person died. And on the outside was written the description of who that person was and their office and all that stuff. So the depiction seems to be that this is the title deed. This is the will and testament of all creation. On the other side of things, on the other side of the two... And sometimes the twos are contrasted, sometimes they're the same. You have to kind of keep your eyes open. But on the other side of the two is a lamb, right, who is described with this extremely peculiar term, right? Um, 
In verse 6, a lamb, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Standing as though it had been slain. What on earth does that mean? Because I've seen slain lambs. They don't stand. So who is being depicted here? When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming in the Gospel of John, right? John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God. So, in my mind, when John saw this and immediately correlated this Lamb to Jesus, suddenly, that image he saw when he was a young man, when Jesus, when Jesus came walking along the Sea of Galilee, suddenly made sense. It didn't make sense to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why they don't record that phrase. But to John, it does make sense. Oh, that's what he meant. He's the lamb, the Passover lamb, who has been slain. Now, he describes him kind of weird. He's got seven horns and seven eyes. People get all wound up on that. Number seven means perfection, and that seems to be what that's supposed to indicate. You have no idea the theories I've heard about this, all right? that it represents the seven dispensations of God's working on earth, that it represents seven ages of the church. It's, it just, it's just the number seven, okay? Uh, let's not freak out over it. Um, <laughs> V-I-I, move on. All right, a little Roman joke there. Anyway, what we see between these two visions, right? We see the lamb comes and takes the scroll. He's worthy to take the scroll. The reason we know that they're a pair is because of the song. Um, and I'm going to put the song up. I'm going to put the pieces of the songs up on the screen. We'll get the next slide here so that you can see what's happening here. In chapter 4 and verse 11, we have a song to the one who's seated on the throne, who is obviously God. All right, God the Father, God the Creator, God the Sovereign. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive, this is the Greek word labane, all right, Labain, it's going to become important later, all right, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now when we go to chapter 5 and verse uh, 9, we see the, the, the beast singing a new song. So therefore, the other song was what? The old song. This is the new song. So that's the song that they've been singing all creation. They've been singing that song. Now they sing a new song. Worthy are you, and this is addressed to the Lamb, even though it doesn't appear in this, addressed to the Lamb who was slain. Worthy are you to labine, to take, same word as appears here, to receive glory and honor, to receive the scroll and open its seals. It's the same word. Um. Worthy are you to, re to receive or to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, now remember the for line, right? For you created all things. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. These are then followed by two other songs. In verse 12, there's a song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing, which is a, 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 a kind of a refrain. And then in verse 13, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now, what's happening there is that John, uh, as he sees this vision, the, the focus, and, and John's visions are always, they're always fluid. Nothing is ever solid in, in Revelation. Things are always changing. He's in the midst of a whirlwind. All right, that's the best way to describe it. But as he hears these songs, right, these songs start out opposite. There's the old song and the new song. There's the one seated on the throne, and there's the lamb that has been slain. All right, and they have two different songs, but then the songs start to fuse. So that by the time we get to verse 13, we have to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. We have them bring brought together into focus. And so I would argue, and this again, I wouldn't take a bullet for this, but I would argue that John is expressing to us what we would call a fully realized Christology, that he believes, he believes that the Lamb, Jesus, is God, just as God seated on the throne is God. And so he's bringing that together. That, that vision brings it together. Now, I can't be entirely certain that this was terribly clear in Jesus' teaching. I know you're not allowed to say that. But, you know, Jesus never comes out and says, I am God. He makes statements, which John records, where Jesus says, before the Father was, before Abraham was, I am. All right, he makes statements like that. John, John is big on that kind of stuff, right? Um, and so John seems to have this more fully realized situation. So what is going on here? That's great. That's wonderful that you drew this parallel. But what is going on here? Good thing I put that pen there so it could fall down. On one hand, we have the creator God. Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God. On the other hand, we have the redeemer God. Worthy are you, O lamb that was slain. The old song that has been reverberating through creation since the beginning and the new song, he sees them together. And here's the great thing about it. He's in between. He's in the midst of these songs. He's hearing them coming from every direction. In fact, they're fusing over one another. Let me tell you what that meant, I think. And again, I think. I think that John's audience the people that were reading this letter were a people that were under intense persecution. There was a lot of fear, there was a lot of darkness, there was a lot of danger to being a Christian. Now this is the first century. Um, it's not an a empire-wide persecution. Those will come later. This is persecution in Asia Minor, and this has been documented in modern-day Turkey. There were a lot of local persecutions against Christians. The Jews didn't like them. The Jews were fighting against them. This was going on. They're going through a very difficult time. And they don't need to hear, well, you know, one day, someday along the line, Jesus is going to take care of you. They don't need a pie in the sky in the by and by. They need to know what their place is now. What is happening in the world? That's what they want to know. And they dig deep into this, and I think that what happens is, as John looks at this vision, he realizes from the beginning to the end, God has always been there. The song has never ended. His sovereignty has never been questioned. His power has never been challenged. 
And now we know in Christ, we know that that is bigger than we could have ever imagined. And the current of the Creator song resonates underneath all of history. And the, song, the current of the Redeemer song resonates above us. And we are in between. And we are untouchable because we are His. Because we are both the Creator's and we are the Savior's. We are protected by both the one who made it and the one who redeemed it. And all we are is contained within the glory and majesty of God. Our experiences in life, our joys, our celebrations, our darkness, our mourning, our grief, in all things, the song continues. Led Zeppelin stole the line, the song remains the same, so I can't use it, but I would never do that in church anyway. Um, But the song, the glory of God, continues. Now in the ancient church, especially in Asia Minor, they believed that because this song um, exists, when we come into a church service, when we come into a worship gathering, we do not walk in and start the worship. So at 10 o'clock or 10.02 or 10.05 or whatever, when Jed and I started playing the songs, that was not the beginning of our worship. Because worship resonates through all creation at all times. The worship of the Creator and the worship of the Savior. This is occurring by, with all the living creatures and all of creation and all the world. It is resonating through heaven and earth. And all we do on Sunday morning is we join our voices to that for a little while. Now, unfortunately, in modern churches that observe that theology, that means you can show up whenever. You know, it's not a big deal. Show up whenever, stay whenever, don't, you know, it's okay. But in reality, what, what they're saying, the, the theology that they're arguing is sound. When we lift our voices in worship, we do not begin an act of worship. We join an act of worship. We join the worship of all creation resonating as the temple of God. And we do not simply rely upon the Creator one day, but rather things have changed because of Christ. What is happening, was, did happen, and will happen again, the until has begun in Jesus. The until has begun. All of history up until Christ For a believer, we could look at it and say it's cyclical. It's just a thing. But now, it's not simply cyclical. It is working toward the end. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know long what it's going to look like. Um, When my grandparents were were young in 1948, Israel became a nation. And suddenly, the entire evangelical American Christian world blew up in insanity. All right. Oh, this is the coming of Christ. We've got 70 years. Get it together. Time to start. My grandparents rushed off and got married at 16 because they were afraid if they didn't do it soon, Jesus was going to come and they were going to wind up apart for eternity. They were married for 60 years. That didn't work out. They, this, this idea is that Christ has begun the end cycle of creation. That resonates here. Now, it's not popular to say. People don't want to talk about there is coming an end. We want to talk about how, how do we, you know, 
it's ironic that John, God's answer to the question, how do we survive the now, is to know that Christ is coming. Not, oh, this will fix all your problems right at this moment, but rather recognize that the sovereignty of God is at work. And the end is coming. The cycle will end, and it will end in the glory of God. When all other tongues are silent. What does Paul say in Philippians? He talks about how every, t- every mouth will be stopped. But I believe this song will continue. When all the universe is silent, when all the stars have stopped burning, when all of the voices of the world no longer echo, the song, worthy are you, worthy are you, worthy are you, will continue. Now, I don't know about you, but it's encouraging to me to know that God knows what he's doing. I find comfort in that. Uh, It's nice to know that God from creation knew what he was going to do. And it's nice to know that he knew when the lamb needed to come. And that he knows how the cycle of history is going to run. And it doesn't matter if tomorrow armed guards sweep into this church building and take take me. Well, I'll be the only one here. Now I'm not coming into work tomorrow. Come and take us captive for being Christians. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the song of the Lamb has started. And He is our Sovereign and our God and our Lord. And we are in the midst of His song. And so the question becomes, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? For the prosperity gospel people, they would say, so now you've got to just name it and claim it. God has promised you amazing things, and you need to just grab them. For the antinomian, which means the person who doesn't believe there are any rules, they would say, do whatever you want to do, because, man, you're a Christian. Nothing you do is sin. All right, I'm going to walk over and punch you in the face, because you're a heretic. I can do whatever I want, because you told me I couldn't. There's no rules. For, for the theologian who is looking for answers and systemizing everything. The reality is, today, we don't need to set a date for Jesus' return. That never works out. I actually think sometimes Jesus goes, oh, he did it again. We don't need to worry about, all we need to do is focus on living the life Christ has called us to live. And I know that sounds really simple, and I know I've said it before. But the truth of the matter is, is we as Christians, our responsibility is to live as Christ would live. In our situation, in our moment, in our day, to honor Him. To join our voice, whether that's the voice of our mouth, or the voice of our lives, or the voice of our bodies, or the voice of our marriages, to join that to the song, worthy are you, O Lord? I want to. I want to recite that one one more time, so we can get it sitting in our heads. Worthy are you, Lamb that was slain, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth.
That's the song that all of heaven sings about the Savior who saved me and saved you. And our lives become a part of that song. And we declare Him worthy in what we do and how we live and what we say. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we again come together and as we have worshipped and connected and go from this place, Lord, help us to live worthy of your name. We live, and I believe we live in the end of days, as we have for 2,000 years. Any moment now, any minute now, events will change. We have no way of knowing what is coming what it will look like in detail, but we know that Christ is coming. And we live to honor Him and to bring glory to His name. To draw all the focus, the glory, the majesty, the power of this world to Him. Not to ourselves, not to others. Lord, help us to be your people. We pray this in